one place um, I enjoy going. Well, in one sense, I enjoy going. In other senses, I don't. But going to the airport. Um, when we lived, when we lived overseas, we were in a lot of airports, um, a lot of traveling from traveling all the way overseas to when we had a, a meeting or this or that, or we need to go see someone. We travel and we seemed like we flew all the time. Uh, and an airport is an interesting place to watch people. If you're, if you like to watch people, it's a great place. And in it, you just how people are walking, you can learn something about them. You can kind of decide, oh, I think you see someone, you're like, oh, they are, they don't travel very often. They're, they're a first time flyer and they're looking around, checking the sign again and again and again. And you're like, yeah, this, this is their first go around. You kind of watch them and they're hesitant. And, Maybe you see someone speeding through the airport, and you're like, they're late. Or, or they can't find their kids, and they're looking for <laughs> kids, and you're like, where are kids? And they're walking, and so there's hurry. And then you have seasoned travelers, and you're like, you can just tell a seasoned traveler. There's just something different about them. And even families that have traveled, there, there's just a little bit of a difference between those who are doing it for the first time. And you just watch and look, and you can see fear, hurriedness, or confidence, and just the way we walk. And, and we know that. We can can make judgments sometimes, and they're not always right, but there is something about how we walk. And as we've been in Ephesians, maybe you've noticed that Paul's used that word several times, walk, and he uses it to describe a way of living before Christ, before we knew him, before we were rescued, and then what it looks like to walk as those who know Christ. And he uses this word walk, and the first time he uses it is in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, where he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, you, in, in which you once walked, following after the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the prince that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And he said, you were once dead in sin, and, and you walked in that. And that was your life, apart from Christ. You walked. You rejected the things of Christ. You walked as dead men and women. Dead. But all changed in Jesus. He was saying, you've been saved and forgiven. You've been given new life in Jesus, who is now has made you his workmanship. He's doing a great work in you. And then in verse 10 of chapter 2, he said, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God, he's, he's working in us and he, did, he saved us by the works of Christ, but then sends us to do things that he calls us to. And we're called to walk in those. And then kind of the, the pivot point in Ephesians chapter 4, and that's where it shifts, where the beginning of Ephesians, it gives all these truths about who we are in Christ, about Christ, about our new life in him, and then how our life is to be after that, how that impacts us when we trust Christ and it impacts our life. And I quoted a couple weeks back from John Stott that says, it begins with these mind-stretching theologies uh, to down-to-earth concrete implications of everyday life. So there's walking. So verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So there's this active obedience as we respond to Christ and he changes us. We walk differently. Our life is changed, and we're to walk in that reality. And then Paul also tells us how we're not to walk, and that's also in chapter 4. This is 17 and 18. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, 
that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So he, and he goes on and just talks about the Gentiles, and he's talking about those who are far from Christ. He's like, you don't walk, the, that's how you used to walk, and now you're not going to walk that way. You're going to walk if you follow Christ. And then chapter 5, which we are now in, chapter 5, we're beginning today. Chapter 5, we're taught uh, more about how do we walk. And Paul uses walk three times in just a few verses. We're called to, in verse 2 to walk in love. We're called later in verse 8 to walk as those who are children of the light. And then later in verse 15 to, to walk really carefully, walk in wisdom. And then there's one place also today. It's not a, he doesn't explicitly use that word walk. Uh, but you can see that as we walk through it, that we're called to walk in holiness. We're called to walk, holiness means to be separate, to be other and different. And when we're in Christ, there's a different change in us. And we're to walk in holiness. So today we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to focus in and look at, to see how we walk in love and walk in holiness. So, so really two main points today. So it should be easy to, easy to follow along. Um, you don't have to get lost. Sometimes I have eight points and sometimes I have two. It just depends how the passage goes. Um, so we got two today. Walk in love um, is our first, though, as we see that Paul calls us to walk in love. Verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5. If you're in the White Bible, I believe it's on page 1081. And Paul says there, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So he began, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God. As beloved children, be imitators. Remember that We've been adopted. Paul says early on in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says that you've been predestined. He's predestined us for adoption to, um, to himself as sons through Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So he's adopted us. He's, he's called us in, and we're his children. So he says, be imitators of God. And, and as chosen, beloved daughters, and sons of God, we will imitate him. Just like a son or daughter imitates their parents, um, which it could be a good thing or it could be unfortunate, depending on how it is. But I remember really, really early on um, in parenting that kids start imitating and they watch you super early on. And it was Anthony. I'm sorry. I, didn't, I normally ask her to share a story. But I've shared it probably before. You okay. Um, Anthony, well, we adopted Anthony about, he was about 10 months old, and he was about two years old, though, at this point, and um, I mentioned before, so we were in Asia, and our apartment, we lived on the 26th floor, and if you walked into our apartment, there was like a little living, or dining room area, and then a living room area, and then like a little porch, or like a glass um, screen, and a grass, glass, not screened in, but glassed in, I guess, porch, and we had this beautiful view over the river. And as I would take a phone call, and I do this today. Whenever I have a phone call, I pace back and forth and just talk. And it's hard for me to sit still. So if I'm ever talking to you on the phone, I'm probably moving around somewhere. Um, and the same was in China. And I would go out to that little area in front of the windows, and I'd walk back and forth, back and forth. And, and like when you're on a phone call with someone in English, you might say, yeah, OK, OK, yeah, got it, OK. And in Chinese, you'd say, doi, 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 which just means, okay, okay, right, right, right. 
And I would do that often, so Anthony would see me. And one day, he had a little toy phone, and he was walking back and forth in that area going, doi, 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 doi. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, they watch. Um, but we're called to be imitators uh, of God, imitators of our Lord God, and walk in love. Um, he has rescued us, and he has loved us, and he's poured out his grace upon us, and we're called to walk as he walks. And it's interesting that it specifically says then walk in love. It's a calling that we have. But we think about that, and we think about how God describes himself. And we've talked about that several times in Exodus when God reveals his holiness, his goodness to Moses, and he declares who he is. He begins with his love. This is Exodus 34, 6 through 8, where God reveals himself. And he says, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So we hear of God who is just full of steadfast love, but also is a just, perfectly just and right God. We're to walk in love. And then Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how we not also graciously or freely give us all things. We see this great love of our God. And by God's grace and his strength, we can be imitators of our God and of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and walk as Christ did. To love as Christ loved. To speak as Jesus speak, spoke. To forgive as Jesus forgave and to serve as Jesus served and to, to embrace the weak and the sinner as Jesus did. We're called to do those things and to imitate our God. To walk as he walked, as Christ walked. And, and this is a command that it's not a, just a one-time thing. Be imitators sometimes, but this is be imitators. As you are a follower of Christ, it's an ongoing call. We need the strength. We need the grace of our God and the enabling of our God to even be able to do that. Remember at the beginning of this passage before, or this section before Paul begins to tell all these things that he were called to walk in, that he had this huge, big prayer. And I encourage you to go back to that, maybe read that this week. It's in Ephesians, the last part of verses like 14 through 21. We just praise for the church that we be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner being, that Christ might dwell in us more and more. And we need that. And then again, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So what are we to do? Walk in love. How do we walk? What does it mean? It looks like Christ and how he loved. And how did Christ show his love for us? Well, he gave himself up for us. He willingly died for us. And that is a love that we're called to imitate of Christ. Galatians 1.4 about Christ says, says that Christ, he gave himself up for sinners for our sins, to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Or Galatians 20, two, or sorry, chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then John 10, I think of John 10. 14 through 17, where Jesus speaks about him being a good shepherd. He willingly laid down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. So Christ is one who lays down his life for the sheep. In Romans 5, 8, 
Again, the love of Christ. Seen in the love of God the Father. God showed his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, still sinners, that Christ died for us. Then 1 Peter 2, 20, it just keeps going. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. To walk out of the model of his love. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled or insulted, he didn't revile, he didn't insult in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continually entrusted himself to him who is the judge, the judge who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might uh, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. So we see again and again and again the scriptures tell us about how Christ laid down his life for us. And we're called to follow in that, that manner. To love as he loved. And he was this perfect, fragrant offering and sacrifice for sin for all. And we see that. We think of in Hebrews. Uh, it speaks about that Christ. This is Hebrews 10, 10 and verse 12. And by that we will we will have been sacrificed we we that will we have been sacrificed or sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all verse 12 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God so we see that we are those who are called to live as Christ would to die and be willing to lay down our life for others, lovingly sacrificing, dying to self. This is from uh, a pastor who is in, in England, and he writes this. His name is Kogan. Distinctive Christian living is self-sacrificing love for the salvation of others, to please God. Notice that our ethic is not just to embrace or to... Uh, is not just the absence of wickedness, but the presence of love. Not just the rejection of impurity, but the practice of grace toward others. Bible-believing Christians often have the reputation for what we deny and reject, but not a, not a matching reputation for gracious generosity toward others. Let us pray for strength to become like Jesus, who is not only without sin, but full of kindness even towards those who hate us. That's the love. We're called to love as Christ loved and how he laid down his life for us. So walk in love. And then also walk, walk in holiness. Paul says we're saints. We're set apart. We're different. We're unique because we are set apart to our God. And we're called to walk in holiness. Let me read verse 3. But sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. So the opposite, really the opposite of walking in love. So he says, walk in love. He said, but don't live this way. The opposite of walking in love is, is to walk in the sin of sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness. Maybe your translation says greed, which later Paul's going to say is idolatry. Sexual sin and greed ultimately are their self-seeking, their self-gratifying, their self, uh, self-pleasure with a, really a disregard to the standards of God. And ultimately, they're, they're not loving. It's not loving. When we depart from God's design, 
for sex and purity, it's, it's not a loving path to go down. It, it's self-seeking. In our culture, though, it's just quite the opposite. Our culture does say anything and everything goes. Uh, follow after your sexual desires, and, and that's most loving. That's the ethic of today. But it's just not so. Uh, there's much loss. There's much pain. There's much brokenness. There's much destruction outside of God's design for sex within marriage. Amen. Families are, are torn in two, and often, and often those who are lost, the who are left, uh, lost and hurting and broken are children in the wake of those decisions to depart from God's design of um, sex within marriage between a husband and a wife. There's brokenness that's left behind because of that. One commentator wrote this, sexual sin is the one place where pride power, and pleasure are inordinately concentrated. If sin gains control, sexual immorality is often the result. Language and greed are so important because they are gateways by which sin finds entrance. And the reality is, this, this is not just an issue with during our culture and our time, but the sin of sexual immorality and impurity greed and lust, it, it's in every culture, in every time. Just a couple examples. When I lived in Ecuador, it was 20 years ago now, um, a little more than that. And one of the things I did, I would help in um, a couple high schools. And one of them was like a technical school for guys where they trained them different skills. And one time I went on a, a field trip with them. And it was a group of guys, maybe about eight students and a couple sponsors. And we went to a swimming pool in another city that was, oh, I don't know, an hour drive away or so. And after we got done swimming, we got back in the pickup because you just ride in the back of a pickup in, in Ecuador a lot of times. So we just we climbed in and we were heading off and we didn't go toward our city. We went somewhere else and I'm like, where are we going? And so we started going a different way and then went off, to, off the main road and we're on a dirt road for a little bit. And I'm like, where are we heading? And then they drop us off and they let the boys off at a brothel a place of prostitution, and one of the boys was like, I'm not going in, and the rest of them just went in, and I had to figure out a way to, to get myself home. Um, but that was 20 years ago in, in a uh, strong Catholic community, uh, culture. Sexual immorality is nothing new. I think of our time in Asia. I've mentioned before, when I got in a taxi, I'd often have common questions, and I'd be asked, uh, where are you from, what do you do, how much money do you make? That was always number three, and then, and then, unashamedly, there would be taxi drivers that would ask, well, oh, do you have a local mistress? And they would already know I was married at this point. Oh, and I unashamedly asked. Oh. And I didn't see, in my 10 years overseas, I didn't see a lot of healthy marriages and families, a lot of brokenness, a lot of departure from God's design in marriage. So Paul says sexual immorality, that's fornication, or the Greek word, Pornia, which means which we get the word pornography from. It's any sex outside of God's design and plan of marriage, including premarital, extramarital relations, including consensual. Um, we, in our culture, the only standard that we have when we throw out the standards of God's word, you got to figure out. Well, we got to have some standard, right? And really, the only standard today is um, consensual between um, adults. But that fall so short from God's standard. We need to be reminded of that. God hasn't, also at the same time, we, we know that God hasn't made sex taboo. He, 
He's created and designed sex as a good, fulfilling, joyful thing within God's design of marriage. Uh, but outside of it, we do find brokenness and damage. And then impurity, Paul says. We shouldn't have impurity. And this is a more broader term focusing in context primarily on sexual sin, but, but much broader of all types of impurity, departing from God's design in all sorts of ways. And then greed and covetousness. Um, those could be lustful pursuits of all types of things, from money to fame to, to comfort to stuff to food and to gluttony. And when I first typed gluttony, I put gluttony. I don't know what gluttony is, but I like gluten, so I don't know. Um, but there's, these are self-seeking things to seek comfort and fulfillment in things apart from God, apart from a right relationship with our creator through Christ. And it says that these things are not even to be named among us. As followers of Christ, not even having a hint of it. Maybe you're, if you have the NIV, it says, but among you there must not even be a hint of these things. So they shouldn't be in our midst. So we're to be set apart. He says we're among the saints. That means we're holy. We're set apart because we've been rescued. We've been forgiven in Christ. And we should walk as those who are children of the light, which Paul also says later on. And we should also walk in holiness in speech. Walk holiness in speech. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So he's saying not only just purity in, in our actions, but our words as well. We're not even to, to joke about these things, of things that are, are filth or corrupt or perverse or base or depraved, foolishness or crude joking. Uh, these things should be put away. Last week we talked about our words matter. Words are significant. We have a God who speaks. He gave us his word. He spoke all of creation into existence. He calls us to speak, but our words matter. We talked about that last week and how our words are not to be used to tear down and to destroy, but to so instead to build up, to create, to mend, to heal. So we need to be careful with our words, and words can be that entryway into sin. I was also reminded of another time where I went on a short mission trip during college. We went down, I think, to Texas. And it was a, just a short trip with my church. And it was a church that I was uh, serving as an intern on. And during that, that trip, um, the leaders in the tr on that trip, unfortunately, they began using kind of coarse, crude joking on that trip. It was with college students. And um, it kind of went down, uh, just kind of the the ethic of the trip. And when I got back, there were two young ladies that came to me and, and said that inappropriate things had been said to them by some of the, the, those who led that trip. And it, um, it was a whole, whole big ordeal. But it began with speech. And it entered a door into going farther than it, than it should ever by those in leadership or anyone in the church. But instead, so instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let there be thanksgiving. We should give thanks. We, we are to be a people who are, are full of, of thanksgiving, not just general thanksgiving, but thanksgiving to our God, who is the creator of all things. So give, thanksgiving really is that opposite of 
of sin, of that sin of sexual immorality or impurity or greed or covetousness. So sexual sin, I, I said, like I talked about here, it's self-seeking, self-gratifying, and Thanksgiving is the opposite where we're pointing to our God and pointing to him and giving thanks because we need him. And we are thankful for all that we have in him. So there's this opposite of those things. What we need is found in him and not in, in other ways. We give him praise for the goodness that we can find in his plan and his ways. And then verse 5. Wow. Uh, it continues. This is a hard one. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there's a strong, strong warning that Paul gives. Now, as we think about this warning, though, we also need to be reminded it's in the midst of a letter that has a whole um, context around it and a whole tone that Paul has given. And there's the huge tone in this letter for the first half is this huge book of assurance to these believers that they have new life in Christ. That God, through Christ and the work of Christ, has rescued and redeemed them and that they can rest in Christ. So that's the background. We'll get back to that. But then we have this true warning here. Paul, in this section, in verses 1 through 7, he's calling them to live these distinct lives, to walk distinctly from the world. Their life is to look different from the world around them now. There should be a change. They're, they're saints. They're to be holy in Christ, set apart as they now have hope in Christ. So, so there's an important thing to be reminded. You, you too, this is how they once lived. They, they, were, they were dead in sin. And we think of other verses where I think in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul lists this whole list of different sin that they, he said, well, you once lived this way, but now you've been washed. But there's still a reminder that there's this warning to not walk in these things. Sexual sin, impurity, greed, and idolatry. Uh, they're, they're to have no part in the walk of those who walk with Christ. And they're not to give themselves over to these sins. They're brothers and sisters in Christ who are to now walk in holiness. And so Paul, Paul warns, though, that those who are far from Christ, those who are walking in the sin of sexual immorality and purity and, and idolatry and greed. They're to walk. Instead, they should live in a life that, that walks in a life worthy of the gospel, walking in love, walking in wisdom, walking in holiness, walking as children of the light. And they need to walk this way, focusing not on, on self-serving, but upon Christ. But if, they're, if this is how they are walking, they're following after the appetites of the flesh and they are rejecting calls to repent and turn to Christ. It says that they, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. They'll spend as they desire to, to walk apart from God, they will walk in eternity apart from him. They have chosen to reject God's truth, his revelation in the gospel. So there's this true warning that comes that those who indulge in sin, knowingly indulging rejecting calls to turn and repent, that they have calloused hearts, that they are no longer desire to follow Christ. There's no desire to follow Christ, to, to uh, walk 
as he has called them to. And there's a true warning. But we also know that throughout the Old and the New Testament, that when God uses warnings, he often uses warnings to awaken people to their sin so that they can see that they need salvation, that they might turn and trust in God, that they can trust in Jesus Christ. So might even this day, if there's this warning goes out and you see that you are far from Christ, that you're, you're walking a life rejecting God's design and you know that you've been calloused over, that you've not turned and trusted in Christ, that this true warning is a warning for you to, to call and, and, and return and, and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So there's an opportunity even today to find new life in Jesus. And know that you were once dead, but now alive in Jesus Christ, who gave himself. We talked a little bit earlier about how Christ gave himself up, died in our place, that we might have new life in him. So this true warning is here. But also, uh, as I mentioned a bit ago, we need to be reminded of this main message that we have in this letter that Paul writes. So is Paul trying in this, is he trying to scare the followers of Jesus in the church to become rule followers for their salvation, to look to work for their assurance of their salvation? I don't think so. Is he saying that they need to stop doing something and start doing something else in order to be saved rather than to look to Christ and his finished work on the cross for their salvation and assurance? No. Is he trying to undermine their assurance and rest in Christ? No. Uh, this is a verse that's part of an entire message that Paul has been giving and what Paul has been saying, what has been the overtone for those who have trusted in Christ that have new life in him, what is the assurance that they should have? Let's review just a little bit. This is just from chapter one, and I'm going to read a lot of this here. Paul, he's writing to people who are in Christ, chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted already as sons and daughters of God, beloved, holy, blameless, forgiven, and redeemed already by Jesus. By his grace has been lavished upon us and sealed with an eternal, with an eternal inheritance guarded by the Holy Spirit, having a salvation sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit, having hope and great power uh, that is working in them, the power that is the power that Jesus rose from the dead with. That's just in chapter 1. And then chapter 2, who are no longer dead in their sins. They're, they're no longer children of wrath, but made alive and raised up with Christ, saved by the grace of Christ. Not by works, but saved by the works of Jesus Christ. So that God can, can then, that he had prepared works for them that they are then to walk in. And remind them that they were once far off, but they were drawn in by Christ. His death and his resurrection and that they're brought into the fellowship of the saints. That's just chapter 2. And then chapter 3, they've been rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. It's so great that we need his help even to fathom how deep and how wide it is. That we've been filled with the fullness of God in chapter 3. So the whole, whole tone of that first half is this assurance to the brothers and sisters in Christ who've turned and have new life in him, that there is assurance there. And this wasn't just said maybe weeks or months ago, like when we were walking through a book. It takes us a while to get to a passage, but just minutes ago in his letter, there's assurance of salvation found in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, 
Not in our works are we saved. And still, though, and still, there is a, this is a serious warning that if we're living in willful disobedience and sin, rejecting God's call to repent and to believe and to turn from walking the ways of the world, and we're seeking, we desire to live a life apart from God, apart from His holiness, and we reject that, then we will spend an eternity apart from the grace and the mercy of our God in that of, of and instead we will experience the judgment and the wrath of God. And then he says in verse 6 and 7, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with the world. One paraphrase of this in the, in the New Living says, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse their sin. So don't, don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by those who contradict what Paul is saying about how we are to walk and about the seriousness of these sins. And those who are saying, oh, don't worry. Don't, don't worry about throwing off sin. Don't worry about following Christ. You need to, 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 to not listen to those words. God, he's a God who's a good God, but also a just God. I've mentioned many times that just as we, if someone, a criminal commits a crime against our family, we want a just judge to judge that crime. Our God is a good God and a just God. He must, he must judge sin. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we desperately need Jesus. We're all in need of the grace and the forgiveness that's, that are found in Jesus. And we just can't run after sin and walking a life apart from him and think that it's okay. We can't also just believe or listen to people say, well, everyone, oh, probably God will just give us a pass, right? No. Uh, we need Jesus. We need the forgiveness that's found in him. Or maybe some might say, well, as long as you have a sincere belief, that's that's enough. And I've often heard that where people will say, well, uh, beliefs are basically all the same. What's important is you have a sincere belief. And, and that's not enough. We need Jesus. Paul taught that we are all dead in sin apart from Jesus. But we're made alive in Jesus. And he pours his grace upon us that we can walk, we can throw off the old way of life. And that we can have victory over sin. That This passage, again, Paul's not saying, everyone, stop. You, from this point on, don't struggle with sin. He didn't say that. <laughs> don't struggle with sexual sin and immorality. No, you're not to walk and live that way apart from Christ. We will still wrestle with sin. We need Jesus. That's why he keeps telling him, throw these things off, put on Christ, put on these new things. And then he reminds them, we'll talk about this next week, but verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. So again, that assurance he gives them. Walk as children of the light. Remember once you, how you were, but now in Christ we walk distinctly and differently and new by his grace. Let's pray. Dear Father God, we thank you for your word that you didn't leave us in our brokenness. You didn't 
leave us as those who are dead in sin, but you sent Jesus Christ, that you loved us and you gave us Christ who willingly laid down his life for us and even on the cross forgave those who were crucifying him that we might know how to walk and might know how to live. We thank you for the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And even as we, we look at this passage and there's a true warning here, we are far from Christ, in rebellion from him, walking after sin, that we are reminded of, that there is a warning and judgment. And I pray this morning, if there are any that are so far, that have been just kicking against, or pressing against, or cutting themselves off from the message of the gospel and of the Lord God, that even this morning, their hearts would be convicted, and that you would open the heart that they might have new life and forgiveness today and that they would use this warning as an opportunity for salvation through Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to be cautious in how we live and how we walk. May we not wink at sin. May we be serious and even wrestle, Lord. We know that, that we are those who we still wrestle in sin. But Lord, help us to be convicted of heart and be resting in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, help us to walk. Lord, as Paul prayed, may, may we be filled and strengthened in our inner being by the Holy Spirit that Christ might dwell in us. Lord, we pray for that even today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, they're rejoicing already in the audience. Well, we are we're reminded um, of our desperate need of Jesus this morning, that none of us were those who were halfway alive when Christ found us. We were all dead in sin, and he gave us new life and assurance of that, and that we're rescued, that we're sons and daughters, adopted, we're beloved children, he said, beloved children, and that comes through Jesus Christ, through his death and his resurrection, that he was the one that lived the life that we could not fully obey the God's word and God's design, fully God, fully man, died on the cross and rose again. And we celebrate that this morning as we take of the Lord's Supper, as we take of the bread and the cup. The bread 